Good morning, everyone here and online. And I have to say, sorry, a special good morning to Joe from the States. I just saw him. It's such a nice blessing for him to come. So <laughs> online, there's Joe. Sorry, <laughs> you can't see him, but he's here. And so thank you. Um, let's just pray really first. Uh, God of every blessing, open our hearts to hear your word today. Amen. So today I'm going to be sharing with you the old, old story of Jesus and his love. But you know we are a forgetful kind of people and we need a lot of reminding. And there's a Rich Mullins song that goes, the old, old story bears repeating and the plain old truth grows dear every day. When you find something worth believing well, that's a joy that nothing can take away. So let's revisit this story of Jesus and his love and open our hearts to hear it again. And may the truth of it sink into your bones, in the marrow of your bones, and extend outwards to all that you love. So let's start off with our statement of faith that we're going to be talking about uh, today, the part that we're focusing on. It says, we believe that reconciliation is made possible through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. We believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ provide the only ground for the salvation for all who believe. It is received by faith and is characterized by an ongoing conversion to the way of Jesus. And so today we're going to look at redemption. What are the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus saves? What does it mean to serve a risen savior, to live a resurrection life? And I wanna start off by sharing kind of a picture of my present reality, of something we, I just experienced. Um, like it seems like half of Calgary or Alberta um, we went to the coast for the summer because we had to leave this province, obviously. Um, so on July 1st, <laughs> sorry, um, on July 1st this summer, we uh, went out to Vancouver Island and we went to visit our friends Esther and Yuri's family. We hadn't seen them for two years. And driving out to BC, um, we entered Glacier National Park. And it's one of my favorite places. There's towering mountains and glaciers and wild, pristine beauty. And we stopped for lunch at Hemlock Grove. Um, and there you see these giant, majestic old cedars and hemlocks kind of growing from the stumps of old trees. And driving into Kamloops, though, the air was a smoky red haze. The sun was red. Visibility was low. The temperature was an oppressive 42 degrees. Um, just the day before, wildfires had just destroyed the town of Lytton, and parts of Kamloops itself was on evacuation alert as fires threatened the outlying neighborhoods. So there was these two images of creation in just the one day. And it was Canada Day. And on our drive from uh, Shushwap area to Kamloops, where 215 Indigenous children lay buried in unmarked graves at the site of a former residential school. We saw orange shirts hung from trees and fences along the highway. And it was a reminder to me that for some people, 
Canada Day was not a day of celebration. But this Canada Day was also our friends, the Sajarzi's family's first Canada Day as Canadian citizens. And for them, Canada was a refuge and a shelter, a place where their children could grow up and go to school in peace and worship God in peace um, and freedom. And so I think our drive on Canada Day um, is a good illustration of the world we live in. So what do we do with these two realities? Is creation a beautiful and wonderful thing? Or is it a wasteland, a fractured world, broken beyond repair? And how does God enter into this? How does the story of redemption speak to our reality? And over this past year, we've been talking about this story, the story of, from the Bible. And we started in creation, where we see that everything God created was good. We see that God created humanity in his image. And we learned also about the consequences of the fall, um, the consequences of sin. It resulted in a broken relationship with God. Instead of close communion, there's alienation and fear between us and God. A broken relationship with creation. The ground is cursed. We must find sustenance only through painful toil and the sweat of our brow. There's a broken relationship with others. Adam blaming Eve, Eve blaming the serpent. A broken sense of who we are and how we see ourselves. Um, they hid in shame, right? And so creation, although created good, has been diminished and marred by evil. But we know that God had a plan, a rescue plan, a plan that demonstrated God's amazing, unwavering love for humanity, a plan to redeem all of creation and restore shalom or wholeness. And this plan was revealed and prophesied through the law of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. And the Jesus Storybook Bible tells it well. It says there's a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue him. And at the center of that story, there is Jesus. And every story in the Bible whispers his name and shows us, as Cliff described two weeks ago, how from the time Adam and Eve hid from God, God has been a searching, seeking God. And Today, when I read from the Bible, I'm reading a lot from the message because I think sometimes it's good to hear the old story in a new kind of refreshing way. It gives us this new insight. And so in Romans 8, we see that when God set out to redeem us, he didn't pull any punches. Romans 8, 3, 4. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition entered into the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. And God chose the most costly to God and the most personal way to save us by sending his only son to die on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. In Romans 5.6 says God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And from his death, according to Ephesians 1-7, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So Jesus' death saves us from our sin. We are released from the bondage of sin. And the price of our release was the blood of Jesus. And so instead of judgment, we receive forgiveness. And forgiveness, in Greek, it says aphesis, which means sending away. So we can say that our sin and guilt has been sent away because of Jesus' death and sacrifice. And the main thing I want you to note about this is this is all God's doing. God initiates, God acts, God saves. And we're reminded in Titus 4.3 that it's not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy, he saved us. Ephesians 2.10 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And the Greek word for grace is charis, meaning gracious gift. So you could say it's by God's gracious gift you have been saved. And grace is a gift that costed God everything and us nothing. It is God initiated. It is given without our asking. It is given with our understanding of or the appreciation of the cost that it costed the giver. There's nothing we have done to earn this gift. In fact, we're offered this gift despite of what we have done. Like Pastor Cal mentioned last week, that unlike other religions, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. Jesus has already done all the hard work when he said it is finished on the cross. So what do you do when someone gives you a gift? You receive it, right? That is the faith part. Faith is the vessel in which you receive the gift of salvation. There's a Scottish theologian, his name is Thomas Chalmers, and he said this way, Faith is like the hand of the beggar that takes the gift while adding nothing to it. So we see that Jesus' death on the cross saves us and releases us from judgment and punishment and death. But there's more. God offers us much more than just forgiveness of sins, although that's a huge thing. Remember, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again. So what did his resurrection accomplish? Let's look at Romans 5, 9, 11 to 11. It says, if, and this is the message, when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by the means of his resurrection life. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply see it in plodding prose. We sing and shout our praise to God through Jesus, the Messiah. So it was not enough for God to save us. We see that Jesus reconciles and restores our relationship with God. If God loved us while we were his enemies, how much more will he bless us now that we are his friends, his children? And God's sovereignty, or Jesus' sovereignty and supremacy is shown in that we are not only the only part of creation that's restored. According to Colossians, Jesus is reconciling himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood on the cross. So again, Colossians in um, the message says, 
Jesus. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. And that's so beautiful. Everything that was damaged and broken in the fall is brought under Christ through his death and resurrection. But we are not done. Jesus not only saves us from something, from sin, from death, from shame, and restores us back into relationship with God, Jesus is also saving us for something. By returning to life, Jesus became a life-giving agent. Just as he was raised to new life from the dead, God makes us alive in Christ through his resurrection. And Romans 8 tells us that when you welcome God into your life, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. And when God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as live as Christ's. Furthermore, it says this resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It is adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children. So through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are saved, we are reconciled, and we are given a new life in Christ, a new identity. We are a child of God, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Our culture tells us that it is up to us to decide who we are. I get to shape my identity. I define myself. I choose who I want to become. And many people see it as a kind of freedom or a right. But I think that can be a very scary or dangerous thing when you place that freedom on shame-filled and broken people. Because I think people's sense of self and identity can be shaped by the abuse they may have suffered, by the racism they may have encountered, by privilege, by depression, by pride, by our own selfishness. I teach children, and some of them are unhappy and ashamed and confused about who they are. And I can see it by the way they hide behind their clothes, or the way they change their names, or they try to redefine themselves um, according to stories that may be damaging or untrue inside. But as Christians, we, our identity is found in Christ, 
It is shaped by Christ. It is gifted to us by God through Jesus' sacrifice. God tells us who we are. We are children of God. We are justified by the blood of Christ because of the great love the Father has lavished on us. And because of this, we can look at the world, God's creation, each other and ourselves from a God-formed perspective. Mark Buchanan was here and he, he, uh, a few years ago, and he described that Christ makes it possible for us to see the world and ourselves through grace-filled eyes. And I just realized I might have <laughs> lost part of my... Oh, there it is, sorry. <laughs> I totally ruined the, the whole... Sorry. <laughs> Focus, okay. So, and how does this world look when we peer through these special grace-filled eyes? I think we become disillusioned in the best sense of the word. I think we no longer live under the illusion that we are in control or that no one is in control. Our eyes are open to the reality and the brokenness of our situation, but we're also able to see beyond our immediate situation to the one who holds all things together. We see the bigger story, the story of God rescuing, redeeming, restoring, and reclaiming his children as well as all of creation. One of Eugene Peterson's uh, essays talks about how we as Christians are workers in the rose garden, a garden created by God, no matter how disheveled it is, no matter if beer cans have been thrown into the rose bushes, it is still a rose garden. And there is more to look at than will ever exhaust our wonder and our adoration. God's creation is a redeemed creation, a creation which is always being shaped by these powers of the cross and the sacrificed Christ working his will in the world. And we who are working in God's garden need to live with a prayerful awareness and attentiveness to what God is doing, lest we end up trampling on the roses or in our zeal or self, sense of self-importance. And so how do we pursue this resurrection life? Romans 3, 1 to 2 says, if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along eyes to the ground absorbed in the things right in front of you. Look up. Be alert to what's going around, on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. For some reason, God chose us, you, me, imperfect, ordinary, not always trustworthy or faithful, um, people to do the work of restoring his kingdom, to participate in the work in the garden. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we are not saved as a result of good works, but we have been saved by grace in order to do the good work that God has prepared for us to do. So remember that we are not living in a wasteland, but a rose garden, 
a garden redeemed by Christ. There is wonder and beauty and weeds. And we may sometimes get overwhelmed by the weeds. We may ask, as a psalmist in Psalm 13 does, how long, O Lord, how long will the earth burn and fires engulf this country? How long will the cries of parents who have lost their children in residential schools go unheard, like Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more? How long will my friends and family members suffer with chronic pain or depression? How long will shame and fear define the identities of our children? But we can also pray with confidence the end of Psalm 13. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. And we can pray this because we can say with confidence and hope the words of that old hymn, we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. Thank you. And um, Renus always likes us to do something like for practice for uh, the next week. And so your homework um, is to read Romans 8. And I encourage you to try reading it in the message. Um, and that's your homework. And class is now over. Thank you. Thank you.